Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Rapcast. This is Samson Folk. You're listening to a podcast that is the mid-series check-in with Jackson Frank who covers the 76ers for Liberty Ballers and the NBA at large at Basketball News, the analyst and Dime Up Rocks, a terrific writer. I read his stuff. He's been on this podcast many times before, including the preview for this very series. His prediction, Sixers in six. My prediction, Raptors in seven. Everything is still in play. Jackson, how are you doing? What are the big things you've noticed about this series so far? I'm doing well. I don't know if I expected when I said Raptors Sixers and Sixties, but I don't think I projected it to, you know, happen this way. Just like I can't imagine you projected, you know, Raptors seven to potentially unfold this way as well. But um, uh, I'm good. I think, you know, when I look at this series, it's, I mean, I think you have to say that the, the style is very much reflected in benefit, reflected what the Raptors want to do the last three games. Um you know, even game three when they lost, I thought things were, you know, things were a little more in their favor in terms of the tide and the, the tone. Uh, and especially what stood on game five was the way that they, they're not crashing the glass offensively much. They're still getting some offensive rebounds um, because they have maybe a couple of guys lurk, you know, if a, if a long rebound happens. Um, but that's really kind of helped quiet the, the Sixers transition game. This, their transition game was incredible through two, the first two wins. And then they've also, you know, kind of use their length to their advantage against Tyrese Maxey when they close out. You know, he was so good at, you know, kind of that release valve guy that we talked about in the series preview. Um, and a lot of that, you know, he was so good at that in the first two games, especially because the Raptors were really respecting his jumper. And rightfully so. I mean, he's a 40 plus percent guy from three this year. But, and that was, he was getting run off the arc, but he's so good at that one true pull up, the floater, the finishes. The Raptors kind of realized we have enough size to maybe stop shorter on our closeouts and put up a high hand still and maybe deter his three because he still has a bit of a low release uh, and sit on those drives. That happened quite a few times in game five, especially um, made Maxi a little unsure of himself about how to attack off the catch there. And so those are the two things that stood out in game five. Obviously I'm sure we'll get into some other, you know, important points regarding major players, the Sixers, but kind of stylistically in terms of the things the collective team was doing well, in those first two games, especially, that's what stood out in Game Five about what Toronto has kind of adjusted and how it's, you know, curtailed those advantages that were quite significant in the Sixers' first two wins. Okay, so I'm trying to think about what a Raptors fan would want to hear first: the Siakam discussion or the Embiid discussion? And I think probably Embiid. So the Raptors, uh, Joel Embiid has been quoted saying, you know, the Raptors play a certain style. It's tough for me personally. And like, you know, the Jason Jason Tatum said the same thing. The Raptors throw a lot of body, a lot of physicality, and a lot of looks at you. And so far, it's been returning, well, early it returned very bad results. Lately, it's been returning very good results. I'm curious what you think of that matchup. It's, it's tough to say matchup because it's like Embiid versus five dudes. But <laughs> matchup, sure. What do you think about it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough discussion in general because... I don't know how much to balance the Raptors, what they've done well, because as, as we've noted, they've generally given the general kind of wing heavy roster they've had for in handsy roster they've had 
for the last few years has always given Joel issues. But he looked so good in those those games. He, I thought he even looked good in the first three games. Like I know he didn't score well in game one, but I thought he was good. I didn't really have an issue with him. But since then, you know, going back to the thumb injury, he hasn't looked good. So I don't know how exactly. Like I think, I think they go hand in hand to an extent, right? Um, I think the, the the fact the Raptors are so aggressive with their helps and their digs and, and being handsy, maybe maybe that deters or dissuades Joel from wanting to attack so much because he does have the thumb injury. But at the same time, I think independent of any opponent, he might be a little less aggressive just because it is a lot because his game is so it's predicated on jumper and handling the ball and things like that. That I think his volume might be lessened regardless. So I, I don't know exactly how to kind of balance those things, but what I think the Raptors have done well is it feels like their help their help has been really aggressive. Like and even in the first half of game three, when he struggled, I think he had four of his six turnovers in that first half, they they found success by like really quick and decisive doubles rather than maybe he's really good when he can see the double coming and read it and just pick it apart. I think that's maybe kind of the approach that I saw more of in, you know, uh, I guess maybe more of game two and game one than anything game in the second half of game three, it kind of felt like there's a lot of single coverage. They moved you well to the, to more face-ups, elbow touches, and he just really kind of destroyed that. So um, I haven't seen as much of that since the thumb injury, because obviously he's more likely to take a pull-up jumper from the free throw line. And maybe he hasn't shot many jumpers the last couple of games. So um, just kind of the decisiveness of the Raptors help when he does get the ball in those post-ups has been what stood out the most. So it seems like the scheme is very capable of directing Embiid to a certain part of the floor. And that's what we saw in the regular season film. But the thumb is affecting the counter probably quite a bit. Is that Mm -hmm. fair to say? Yeah, I think, you know, first and foremost, Joel wants to get the ball in that left mid post area. You know, I just say post left post extended. But dating back to last year, the the counter he's had is like, we just got like, if someone, someone that bothers that a team, whoever it is, a defender individually, the Sixers just say, okay, we're going to put MB at the free throw line instead. And it's easier. It's double can come easier, but passing outlets are increased and easier to read. And he's become so good at kind of those one, two dribble pull-ups and just that shot fake as well. But his jump, I don't know how many jumpers he's taken in the last couple of games, but it's not very many, I would say. And I think a lot of them are just like end of clock. The ball comes his way beyond the arc and he kind of has to take it. So um, if he's not really a threat to shoot off the dribble, it, you know, it, they can't run that as often. So yeah, I would say that in, and that's a counter, as you said, because the mid post has not been super fruitful for him in the series. Even though he was good, very good in the first three games, it wasn't like he was dominating from that area primarily. Mm-hmm. The the broken plays are less available. The transition, the early seals are less available too. I'm curious what you think about games six and and possibly seven. Is there something you want to see tried with Embiid? Is there something that you think hasn't been explored yet? Or are you just kind of waiting for that superstar pop uh, to return, maybe from the middle of the floor? Yeah, I think I, I think you would have to maybe want there to be a little more pick-and-roll game. Um, it seems like that's been an action that's worked well. And the best action that the Sixers have, you know, combining James Harden and, and Joel Embiid, is that Chicago action, right? The pin down into the dribble handoff. But the issue there is Joel still has to make a handoff likely with his right hand. And so it's one of these things that permeates through basically the entirety of his game. And I'm sure we'll get to the defense later as well, but like if he, if he knows that he's going to have a dribble handoff with a OG or a precious or a Pascal digging in there to try and you know, muck it up, he doesn't want that hand to get hit. And, and so that that's an issue as well. Like they just, they, they don't really run a lot of just high ball screen stuff. 
um, because you know Harden doesn't have the burst these days to just create from a standstill, right? Like if they run a high ball screen, the, the Raptors can just hedge it. They can show it. They can switch. And then it's kind of neutralized. Whereas you get Harden on the move downhill, it's a little tougher for the Raptors to navigate that or anyone for that matter. So um, that's the big counter. But I don't know how plausible it is because, as I said, you know, it requires Joel to put his hand out there for a defense that is quite good at, you know, breaking things up and being handsy and, and whatnot. So it's not an easy solution. You know, I, I think you just, I mean, regardless of what change they make, he just, they've, he's going to have to be more aggressive, I think. But, um, making those changes, you know, whether it's an actual change or just taking more shots and being more decisive isn't necessarily just an easy fix, right? It's not like he's not like just a player who's been a little quiet. You need him to get it going. He's he's, he's dealing with a, a torn ligament in his thumb, so it's not an easy fix. Mm-hmm. This this brings up, we'll just do the full Embiid thing now. We can talk about the defense, but the defense, I think, starts from fatigue, which also stems from the offensive approach. Well, the, the defensive approach of the Raptors, it, it bleeds into the other end. And switching a lot of those pick and rolls, even the, the Chicago action, right? The Raptors will switch across the top of that, provided they have maybe it's OG and Scotty involved in it. And then they don't have to be scram switched out of the Embiid stuff. But Embiid, everywhere he goes on the court, he's getting pressure and he's getting resistance. And it, he's very clearly fatigued and he's getting like gassed in some of these games. And defensively, we saw the fever pitch of that in game five, where Embiid in game three not only was a an offensive superstar, but sealed off the rim to everybody. Like, the, as I said in my coverage here and, and elsewhere, is that this is the same guy who shut down the rim for Kawhi and Kyle and Siakam and everybody on that team, a championship team. He certainly can do it against these Raptors. But in game five, got tired, started kind of, waiting out past the paint. They went to zone to combat this. I'm curious what you think about the the stamina aspect of this, of Embiid in this series. And do you think that, do you expect that to show up on the defensive end again? Yeah, I mean, I I can't remember the last time I saw it. I mean, they, they were, the Raptors were, for the lack of a maybe more nuance, they were hunting him. And I, I can't remember the last time I saw anyone like ever hunt Joel Embiid like that. Um, you know, I remember in the bubble, you know, in the playoffs when he was up Ben Simmons, he wasn't great defensively, but that's also because he had a ridiculous load against a very good, you know, Boston Celtics defense. Um, and his second best offensive option at that point was Shake Milton. So um, it's a little different now when everyone's, you know, available. I wouldn't say fully healthy because no one's fully healthy in the NBA at this point, but everyone's <laughs> yeah. able to play. Um, I, I don't know what to expect because, as you said, it's been such a dichotomy, right? Like he was so good in game three on both ends. And in game five, it was Precious and Pascal, like multiple times, each of them get into the rim with ease. And Precious, even throughout the year, his kind of ability to at least garner some sort of closeout and then attack off of that has given Joel problems, even throughout the series, too. You know, they haven't really, they've been willing to concede threes to Precious, but Joel at times will close out later in the game and Precious a little shot fake or just a rip through and go. And hasn't always worked. Joel's gotten the best of him a few times, but. Um, you know, Precious in the game five had at least two or three, if I recall, in that third quarter, driving by him. A couple of them were, I think he had one where he kind of like lefty finish around you well. It was really impressive. It wasn't like all of them were just blow-bys. Some of them were in between Pascal and Precious. But um, I don't know what to expect in, in, in that regard from Joel because it wasn't just those plays individually. It was the general kind of lack of activity. Like what's made Joel so good 
you know, with defensively is he has really good hands and he, he, he plays with active hands. And that was not the case in game, in game five. And it felt like the Raptors had so much more space to work with and in, in passing windows and, and whatnot. So um, that stood out in general. And I think that, you know, the lack, the fact that he's not playing with his active hands when he's like stepping up as a rotator or, you know, defending the lob is goes back to the thumb thing, because if he has to risk his thumb getting, you know, collided by a, a basketball that's being thrown with some force, he's probably not going to do that. Um, so, I mean, again, I don't want to, I'm not trying to like say everything is about thumb, but everything that has shifted from game three to now, I think at least involves to a degree, you know, that, that thumb injury. I'm not saying it's the L of it, of course, the Raptor done a very good job, but I think it's disingenuous to, and this is no one saying this, but it, it would be disingenuous to not acknowledge these things. Um, but Joel has to be better. Like, I, I don't know. Has to be, like, he has to be better if the Sixers want to go, you know, where they want to go this year. I'm not going to sit up here and be like, oh, like, he has to be better. But it's like, that's just, I mean, he's an MVP candidate. They need him to be an MVP candidate to to accomplish their goal of, you know, whether it's an Eastern Conference Finals, a Finals appearance, a title, whatever it is. And he hasn't been close to that last couple games. And there's a number of factors, many of which are the thumb slash the defense from the Raptors. It's, uh, you can't delineate the instrument with which you manipulate the basketball if you have a, an injury there. It's a big deal. In the, in the summer, you penned a piece about Pascal Siakam and how the conversation around this guy was a little bit weird and that he seemed very underrated. This is, this is your NBA coverage aspect, right? And you and I have talked many times, actually, about how we thought that Pascal was underrated and, and even by his own fans, right? And so we're sitting here heading into game six Games four and game five were terrific. They were really, really impressive. I'm curious what you think about his role in this series so far. Yeah, I think the biggest change to me is that they're sort of still letting Siakam be the hub of the offense, but it's not as burdensome or simple as, okay, Pascal, just create. It's it's they're actually setting screens for him. They're getting like they recognize that Tobias is very good when he can play one-on-one coverage against him and and they've the the general theme of the series has been a lot of allowed physicality by both sides from the refs and Tobias used that to his advantage, but he's not great navigating the screens and the Sixers are going to switch a lot of those things. And so they're you you know when Fred was available, they were using Fred as a screener in Game Four. You know it was a lot of Gary in, in OG in Game Five, if I recall. And I mean nobody else can. Go, I mean if it, when Embiid's playing like he did in Game Five defensively, nobody else besides Tobias can credibly guard Siakam. And so. Um, just it, the biggest, the biggest change I thought was Tobias was like limiting. I don't know what the numbers were, but like if I think if you looked at like accurate matchup data, the shots per 100 possessions with Tobias for someone else on him would be way lower for Pascal. He's he's actually able to get his shots off against other guys, and his his shot diet is always going to be a little bit tough. It looks good for him because he makes a lot of them. He's he's a star player, but. Like the fact that he couldn't get a lot of shots off against Tobias was the biggest thing. It wasn't that just like Tobias was forcing him in tough shots because a lot of the shots Pascal has taken the last couple of games, you'll probably live with in the grand scheme of things. Maybe not in the Raptors offense because they don't have a lot of half court creation, but like if you just like make a whole spectrum of like results in an offensive spectrum, on an offensive graph, or whatever you want to call it, you would live with a lot of Pascal's shots, but they're ones he can take and make. So the fact that Tobias is not guarding them to deter those shots altogether has been a, a big difference for the Raptors and the Sixers. And 
you know, kudos to to everyone on the Raptors side for realizing that if we actually just set simple screens from Pascal, we're going to get him favorable matchups. And that has worked quite well the last couple of games. I think it's 17, 17, 19, 22, and 40 as far as how many pick and rolls Pascal has used per game. So <laughs> a sizable jump. And uh, going from 22 pick and rolls in game four and 15 free throw attempts, as as you said, that allowed physicality that has you know allowed for a certain dynamic in a lot of matchups on both sides of the floor that every raptor with Embiid and tobias with with pascal it was interesting to see how that went the first three games pascal was pretty good in the half court in game one game two got to spots missed shots a lot to do with Embiid in uh, the places where he typically makes them and game three really struggled in the second half but game four and game five got a lot of calls in game four so, and good guys get calls, sure. And game five, only two free throws, but those screens freed up a lot of space for him. And the it seems like he's starting to get a pretty good read for the stunts and rotations of the 76ers defense. That That's my biggest takeaway is the assist to turnover ratio is also trending in a very uh, positive direction as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had a, I mean, he's had a couple of, you know, like I, I, I obviously I'm trying to pay attention to, both sides as much as possible, but just natural inclination. My brain is wired to maybe gravitate a little more toward the Sixers, but um, that's the beauty of the rewind factor and, and abilities to rewatch these games. And I've, I have noticed Pascal be a lot like his passing. Well, obviously everyone who's listening to this podcast knows all about his passing improvements, but it felt like some, there was a little bit of regression to some old tendencies in the first few games. And whereas now, like he is last few, he did a couple, at least a couple of races. I remember from game five or like, the Sixers would stunt when he would drive right or left and maybe try and recover. And Pascal, you know, he maybe he'd rise up for a shot and then audible out of it the last second to force an advantage or create an advantage for a teammate. And that, I don't think that was there, you know, very often in the first few games. So, yeah, I totally agree that it feels like he's getting a better sense of how to read this particular defense, which is what happens in playoff series. You know, when you play a team five times in a week and a half, you just get more accustomed to their tendencies and how they're going to go about defending you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So if you don't mind, you know, put on the coach's cap. And let me ask you to do the same. If you're the 76ers, and it seems like Pascal is kind of gaining momentum in this series, he sees the scheme you've been throwing at him and is starting to have really good reads for it. But as you said, the, the shot making is still, that's a really tough diet he's on. Do you just bet that you stick with that tough diet or are there changes you're looking to make? I, I think you look to make changes because a lot of the alternatives in this Raptors rotation at this point is just also tough, tougher shot making, right? Like, you know, (laughs) OG's had some really impressive stuff, uh, impressive buckets and whatnot, but I think you'll live with those over Pascal. You'll live with the, the good starter over the guy who might make an all NBA team this year, right? Like it's just a matter of situation. You'll live with Gary making 20 footers over a contest. Like it's just, that's who Gary is, but it's also, you'll accept that you'll live with, a Kem Birch floater from the baseline, which hasn't really been going in, but it's a shot that tends to kind of happen every now and then in these games. Um, you'll live with, you know, I don't know if you live with Precious, you know, attacking the room for easy dunks, but you would probably live with 
you you feel I, I think you'd feel better as a Sixers if Precious is making a decision as a scorer versus Pascal, right? Like, you know, yeah. of course, if Pascal is igniting that decision by forcing the defense into rotation, that's a different story. But you know, from a standstill, you feel much better about Precious trying to create than Pascal from a Raptors or from a Sixers perspective. Excuse me. So what what I would try and do, and I don't know how, how plausible this is, and when we it's probably easier you know said than done, but um, a lot of pre-switching was what I would try and do is you, you know, when you wreck, and that requires a certain level of attentiveness, right. From the defense and the coaching staff. But when you see someone start to kind of shift over to set a screen to get Tobias off of Pascal, you're telling Joel or, or Danny Green, who I think are the three guys you would feel best about guarding Pascal, right. Um, to different degrees, but you don't want, you don't want Maxi, You don't want, um, you don't want James Harden on him. You don't want George Niang, um, you know, Paul Reed, I think, is okay, but like he's only going to play eight minutes a game or whatever, so it's kind of an inconsequential, you know, factor here. But the, the pre-switching, right? So you see a Gary or an OG or even a Chem, you know, come up to, to set a screen. You're telling Joel or Danny, you know, to to go to go, you know, scram out Max. You know, I guess I, I don't know exactly what the proper linear, you know, proper verbiage is, but you're telling you're telling Max to get over to whoever it is and um, and whatnot. And obviously, there's a there's a ripple effect of that because then you leave a mismatch to maybe allow an offensive rebound. Now I talked about this, the Raptors emphasize an offensive rebounding less, but um, sometimes you're just smaller than the guy you're trying to box out or get a rebound against. And, and so that, that leaves you in a tough spot. If it's a Harden or a Maxi trying to box out an OG or a Chem or, or a Scotty, we haven't really talked about Scotty, but um, obviously I was a really good sense of, of timing and space and things like that. So um, that's what I would try and do. I don't know how you know realistic it is, but I think you, you can't concede these, these times where Pascal is backing down a, a Harden or a Maxi with no, no direct help or things like that. And so I would just re, re, just be really attentive about who is the defender of the screener for Pascal. Good. That's a, that creates a, as you said, how, how that ha- happens, what that looks like, and if it can be executed at a high level, that's why they play the games. But it does create a parallel to the Harden and Max, the relationship between overloading on Harden and giving Maxi avenues, big gaps to punch and how that changed fundamentally after game two. And we've seen, you know, Maxi, whether it's young players, role players, once their shot diet changes and they scale back, it starts scaling back hard and they have to kind of reassess and get back to their normal. As you said, Maxi, he was plus 40% on the pole and plus 40% on the catch, just an insane three-point shooter. So you'd have to assume that's still going to be a big part of the games remaining, whether it's and you know the playoff run, whether it's the 76ers or the Raptors. But the Raptors stopped shading as hard on the Harden drives and made it so that if you're going to get the advantage, Harden, go earn it. We will not grant your playmaking wizardry the automatic, here's the play. And I'm curious what you've thought about Harden in this series and Maxi and Harris working off of it. And then probably once that adjustment was made, what you thought about Harris and Maxi working kind of independently with their own screen game instead of just attacking advantage. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a big, you know, adapt, adaptation alteration, whatever you call it, from game two. You know, I went on a couple of podcasts and talked about things the Raptors could do differently, and that was probably the biggest one I talked about is just like, playing hard and straight up because he hasn't earned that benefit of the doubt as a scorer this year. Um, still great as a passer, as you said, and as everyone knows, but um, it's harder if you can't actually collapse the defense to make those passes. So um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think Harden has very much struggled, and you've seen kind of, you know, the longstanding issues with Harden, you know, even, you know, at, when he was at his, his physical, you know, peak in terms of explosiveness and whatnot, was he wasn't a very good, he wasn't a very good off-ball player. But it didn't really matter because he was, you know, arguably the greatest, you know, I mean, I would say one of the best individual creators. I don't want to, you know, slight mm-hmm. a Katie and a Steph, uh, you know, LeBron, of course, but, you know, top four individual creator. And so it's like, okay, he passes up catch you three. He can just reset the offense and attack downhill instead. Now he doesn't have that luxury, right? And so when he passes up a spot up three or he attacks off the catch and he, he tries to pass out of a floater or he misses a floater, like there's no, there's no, I guess, like buffer for that. Or there's no, there's no way to work around that missed opportunity to the same degree. So that's something, something he's adjusting to. He, I thought yesterday was probably his worst game. Um, I, I, like I thought he was solid in the first three games. I didn't think he was great, but you know, good enough, you know, given how well Maxi and Joel and Tobias are playing, like he was just doing his job setting others up, but um, you know, he can't really set others up as we know, because they're playing, they're playing straight up and he can't collapse things. So um, he's definitely struggled in that regard. He's going to have to make some adaptations. You saw a little bit, you know, early in game five, he had a little step back jump over mid range. Um, I think against Gary or someone else on the drive. Uh, it was weird. I actually thought he looked like pretty spry the first few minutes. I thought we were going to get a game from Harden where he had 25 and, you know, because he's just it's such a mercurial player these days in terms of his scoring aggression and whatnot. It just seems to kind of ebb and flow with his physical you know, capacity to get downhill. And it seemed like early on we'd get something good from him, but obviously we didn't. Um, still pretty passive. And then, you know, Tobias, I think, has been – I think he's been the most consistent player for the for the Sixers in this year in terms of approach. Now, the results haven't been the same every time, but I thought he was still pretty solid in game five, had a nice, some nice downhill attacks, especially coast-to-coast, you know, after a rebound. Um, really playing with a level of physicality he hasn't often adhered to throughout his career. Um, now, Maxi, I would say in general, Tobias has t- t- kind of been the same to me. The volume hasn't maybe been there as often, but he's still letting it fly from deep when he can. And he's still kind of attacking you know, space when he can as, as a driver. Maxi, you can tell there's a diff, like the you can, you can see the gears turning these days when he attacks off the catch. And that didn't really seem to be the case in the first two games, especially where it was just like, he knew exactly what to do. He knew exactly how to read the defense. Like he had clearly studied how the Raptors had defended him and generally players off the catch during the regular season. And he had, he was ready for that. Now they've shifted. And, you know, as we mentioned, he's a very good shooter, you know, plus 40%. I think he was third or fourth in three point percentage this year overall, but he's a six, one, six, two guard with kind of a, it's at least in the, it's a, it's a lower release point, right? It's not, he was in a similar class in terms of percentage to Desmond Bain or Cam Johnson this year, but he's not, he can't shoot over those guys, over to contest like those guys can, right? With Cam being tall and Desmond having the really elevated release point. He doesn't have a really tall, tall release point. He's, not, he's short too for in, in the grand scheme of NBA players, right? Not, and he's a, you know what I mean? So um, that has really kind of caused him issues. And when he tries to attack off the catch, he has less space to get into his gather for the one or triple pull-ups and, and stuff. So, and he's not, he's, he's an okay passer. He's gotten a lot better since he joined, you know, entered the NBA, but um, he does, he's, he can't make a bunch of like, he can't attack off the catch and then see Tobias open on the weak side wing and, you know, rifle a skip pass over his head. It's just not his game, especially, you know, given the size disparity between him and the Raptors wings and length. So um, he's struggling. I, he's a guy, I don't know, like, I don't know, if, I don't want to be too cliche, but he's adapted really well throughout his career to things, especially this year. And so I, I wouldn't be surprised if he's better prepared, you know, a couple of days off, they'll get a practice in on Thursday, they'll, they'll two days to kind of watch some film if he's better. But clearly what the Raptors are doing is 
less conducive to success for him and he struggled to adapt thus far thus far so my question for you then is are you expecting something which way are you expecting these matchups to break the rotation that has been really on par and the five guys on a string ethic that the Raptors have been able to follow and execute. Are you expecting that to hold up? And on top of that, you know, guys like Pascal, OG, Precious, stepping out on Harden, forcing misses, forcing turnovers, and forcing dead possessions. I think it's 104 possessions of OG on Harden so far and 70 team points scored. And I'm curious what you think is going to happen with those matchups because it's easy to see a path where Embiid is just deeper in the paint and crushing the Raptors. It's really hard for me to see Harden or Maxi manipulating heavily at the point of attack. I think. I think something they've gone away from that's really contributed to the lack to the you know the lack of consistent impact from from Harden and Maxi lately has been that dynamic two game two man game they were running early on. Uh, you know whether it was Maxi screening for Harden or vice versa. Doc has shifted how he's staggering things. He's he's given Harden a lot of bench heavy lineups. I think they that lineup they opened with in the second quarter that was disastrous for the Sixers was I think it was Shake, Harden, Niang, uh, Matisse, and and Paul Reed, uh, which was awful. I mean, Matisse won't play in game six, but though he played in game five, shouldn't earn him a you know a rotation spot in potential game seven. Um, so You've got to go back to that, I think. I think the way Tobias is playing, it makes sense to play off of Joel as well, whether it's you know the quick catch-and-shoot threes or attacking downhill with such physicality and force. Um, and then with those two, I think with Maxine Harden, you want to get that two-man game going again. And it, it's weird because some of the, you know, when they were doing they were doing a lot of Zoom availabilities last year, and I was able to, you know, be in a lot of Doc's pressers, he would talk about the idea that like if we have a play or something that's working, we're just gonna keep running until the defense stops it. And the lineups they were running through the first two or three games were working. You know, the Maxi Harden staggering, the Joel and Tobias. I don't know if it was Joel and Tobias, but Maxi and Harden together. And they just kind of that that rotation pattern just dissolved. And so it's really weird. And this isn't to say that like, Doc is the only issue, but one thing I thought Doc did very well in the first couple of games, especially, was he put his he's put his players in very good position to succeed, whether it was role or the lineups. And recently, has not done that very much, and so. Um, that's that's definitely playing a role, and so I think the way to get at least one of them going would be to kind of go back to that lineup in those two man games, and um, because you know even late in game four, in game five, they started to play Harden off the ball and play Maxi up top, and there weren't not every possession was great, but Maxi's a level of speed and explosion that the Raptors still can't contain at the point of attack. Now he has his own issues. You know he's not a great passer. He's he's still going to maybe tr- struggle to finish when the defense is more set as a driver, but. I think you could see more of that as well. And I think you can still incorporate, like it doesn't have to be hardened in the corner, right? Like you can, you can still use Maxi on the ball and see what you can get, get, get both of them going. And so um, those are the, the changes I would expect to make, but um, yeah, I, I don't think expecting Harden to, you know, be a guy who goes and scores 28 in game five, game six is, is reasonable for anyone. And, and so um, I, I think it's just going to come down to, Doc doing a little more to get those guys going and also those guys just being better. Like, I, I, you know, coaches can only do so much. I don't think Doc has helped the last couple of games, but the fact of the matter is he doesn't have a very deep team and the guys that he does rely on aren't playing that well. And so it's a tough position, but he certainly has kind of exacerbated some of the issues recently. Okay. Uh, every podcast I do with somebody from outside of the Raptors sphere, I have to get the, the Scotty 
temperature check just because you know every everybody wants to hear about scotty what people think about scotty so uh rookie of the year in this series comes back from the injury was really great in game one i think really helped the raptors with that you know you're talking about loading up on siakam and and pre-switching in in game five or or going forward and just being able to take a guy like max or harden in the post a couple times the way he did in game five is helpful for that pre-switching but scotty Jackson Frank, thoughts? Yeah, I thought, you know, obviously game four, he was, you know, he maybe tweaked the ankle again on that, you know, that, you know, from trip over Paul Reed's leg on a screen. Um, I thought he was obviously very passive, took a couple of kind of weird threes that you just, you know, I know Scotty can take some stuff off the dribble, but didn't really feel like in the flow of the general Scotty threes that I've seen this year. Now, I, you know, I didn't watch every game, of course, so can't speak for that, but just felt a little like he wanted to get his shots up, but didn't, but didn't feel comfortable playing his, you know, his, post his unorthodox unique post-up style we saw more of that in game game five as you said being on release valve when when the Sixers tried to switch um you know on siakam or whatever and and so i thought he was good at, you know had some nice plays at the point of attack against harden had one play i recall maybe in the second quarter but um slid pretty well stayed on harden's hip and you know funneled him to help and there's either a block or a really tough finish for harden that didn't hit rim so um definitely looked a lot better in game five just in terms of his willingness to kind of exploit those mismatches he's he's a really good mismatch score him and pascal are similar in that in that way that you put a smaller guy on them they're gonna seek contact play through it and finish through it with that nice touch from about 15 feet and in and so you saw some flashes of that that have been there that were important to him, you know him winning rookie of the year so um and then i thought it looks just better at the point of attack you know isn't he still has some issues with the point of attack but i thought his ability to kind of you know just use size and give put size up there against a Harden or even a, a Maxi or Tobias was was pretty beneficial to the Raptors holding the Sixers to whatever it was, 85, 90 points, I don't recall exactly, but not many points, especially after the first quarter. Yeah. Okay, Jackson, you said Sixers and six. I said Raptors and seven. Do you want to amend that prediction? If so, why? If not, why? Yeah, it's it's tough. I I think I'm going to stick with it just because like, I, I know Joel has not been very good or particularly aggressive the last couple of games, but just having covered him for half a decade, like I just, I can't see him playing like this for four straight games. And I think even if he's just more willing to kind of get deep position and I know deep position, hasn't really been an issue. That's where he's gotten the most of his points the last couple of games, but like to work for position more consistently or, you know, go back to that face up stuff to kind of collapse the defense it'll help everyone. Like I just like even last year, like even against the Hawks, he wasn't, you know, he was very good overall, but still had some bad turnover stretches and you know that that's scoreless game four or whatever it was in the six or one of their first blown leads. Like I just can't see him playing like he did. Like maybe the defense can use to be an issue, but I just think he's going to be more aggressive offensively. And doesn't mean all of a sudden he's going to have another 35 point, I guess like 33, but 33 point game. Um, I say only 33 of this. That's not, not a lot of points against a top 10 defense. Um, but I, I just can't see him playing that way. And like, I don't want to be too cliche, but again, I've covered him for four or five years now. And, you know, he is, he is not a man who makes errors of omission. He makes errors of commission. He's going to miss shots, turn the ball over foul, you know, do things. And those aren't necessarily good, but I just can't see him playing like he did in games four and five. And I think just being more aggressive will open things up and, you know, I think the Sixers also, they didn't get very good shots in game four or game five, excuse me, maybe even both games, but 
you know, obviously the Raptors had, had an advantage there, but they also missed a lot of good looks. Like they just, they, I think there was what a 35 minute stretch for the only guy to hit a three for them was Danny Green. Now Danny was quite good in game, game five, you know, kept them afloat for a little while, but they just, I thought they got much, I thought their offensive rating was not as indicative of, of the poor showing they had. I thought it was still a poor showing regardless, but I just expect things to go better. And like I said, I, I started with thr- Sixers and six. I got to stick with it for now. Right. So I'm going to stay there. I think uh, I think we're both gonna sit in a place where we stick with our predictions because I think it'd just be really funny if I said Raptors in seven and then it was this version of winning in seven. I mean, how could how could you not turn that down? And also, I'm wondering if the Raptors are gonna have a big shooting game. I think the 76ers are 39% on open threes so far in the series. I think the Raptors are 31% currently. I wonder if there's a game where the Raptors, they swing it, and then it's a dogfight. Who knows? Or maybe it's two dogfights. Maybe it's just a loss. But uh, keeping the keeping the prediction seems like a, a fine thing to do. Why move off of it when the the version of it coming true is like history, right? So yeah. it feels... Uh, and and think, every game's been a toss-up, too. So Yeah, and I, and I think, like, for me, too, I, I didn't expect the Sixers to get out to a 3-0 lead. But I did, but the but the way games have gone and the, the ways advantages for each side have been exploited or you know utilized has been about what like the things we talked about you know pre you know, pre when we previewed this, like I said the the order of events has not been consistent with my you know envisioning, but the way those the way those events have happened at least you know the, those events happening I should say at all have kind of been what we expected. So I'll roll with it. I think momentum is such a fickle thing. Like you know. I don't think people would, you know, the Sixers are up 3-0. Their MVP candidates had a dominant game, you know, to win game three on the road. Uh, they hadn't played there since, you know, since they had a heartbreaking game seven loss. And then they come out flat for two straight games. The Raptors make good adjustments and kick their butts. So um, that's not to say that, like, the Raptors have earned it. But I just, I try to stay away from kind of the fickleness of riding momentum because both teams have momentum. And um, I just think that the Sixers are going to do enough things well in game six to, to pull it out. But could be wrong you know could you know we could be doing a, a reflection series you know pre- podcast you know in three days four days but i'll say there for now so it's gone about like i said as i expected but not in the same order that my mind uh, predicted mm-hmm. that's uh it just puts you in a position where you're like the you you have to say i'm waiting for the 76ers to beat this version of the raptors this game plan of the raptors but as soon as they do then it's then it's over Right. And that's like, that's the thing about the playoffs is it's punch, counter punch, counter punch. And the 76ers haven't had theirs yet. The two games have really gone the Raptors way that they've won. And we haven't seen the counter punch yet. If it comes and it's good, then it's over. If it doesn't, then swings the other way. But uh, Jackson, not the most, I mean, he made some good initial moves to open the series, but counter adjustments, you know, if not his strongest in the playoffs. So maybe they don't come. And if they don't, the Raptors will win this series. I don't, I'm not going to like be overly definitive in that, but that would be my prediction. But I just think there's going to be enough, you know, things on the margins to, to swing it back in the Sixers' favor for one game. But like I said, if those things don't happen, then I expect the, I, I'm not, again, I'm not going to be definitive in it, but I wouldn't at all be surprised is how I would say that the, they are the first team to blow a 3 0 lead. But I don't want to, predict that it feels like a, t- a too bold of a, of a claim that's not really my my shtick as somebody who Harden is one of my favorite players of all time as is Joel Embiid I am 
obviously I want the Raptors to win this series, man. I, I want the Raptors to win in seven, but I will detest the conversations that come afterwards regarding two of my favorite players. But yeah, that, that feels yeah, like a podcast. But you just, you just, you just, you don't see any of the conversation. You just, you stay in your bubble, you do your work and then you don't have to see any of it. And then it's, you know, ignorance is bliss, right? It truly is. I think on some of these discourses. So that's why I'm trying to, that's how I'm trying to go about these things in the playoffs, but I definitely empathize with you there. I, I don't, what the, the imaginary discourse that I will know is the discourse that I imagine that I know is happening, but not reading will definitely aggregate aggravate me as well. But, you know, mm-hmm. I guess for your sake, we hope it happens for both of our sakes. We hope it doesn't happen. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Uh, Jackson, before we get out of here, is there anything you'd like to plug or say to the listeners? Uh, I mean, you can follow me on Twitter at Jack Frank underscore JJF. I'll have, some fun stuff coming out this week about some other playoff series, something on the Bucks and Bulls. Maybe I want to get something up on this fun Suns, Pelicans, and Grizz Wolves series. We'll see exactly what fan- suits my fancy, but definitely something on Bucks, Bulls, and something else on these other very, very fun Western Conference matchups. But appreciate having me on, and uh, you know, looking forward to talking uh, whenever we do again soon. Hell yeah. Listener, by the way, uh, Jackson wrote – is like this awesome, awesome piece on how the Heat are guarding Trey Young. And there's nothing better than when an analyst writes something that is like applies to the series as a whole and it stays and it's relevant. So you can actually just go read that now and it'll make sense in the in the series. And I guess you'll be listening to this after the Heat either eliminated them or, you know, Trey and the Hawks found another game in the series. But yeah, I really, I recommend that one very highly. But Jackson... Thanks for coming on, brother. I'll uh, I'll see you soon. And uh, yeah, take care, man. Yeah, likewise, my friend.